minutes. I'd like to use those, but. Uh, The opportunity to be able to speak. Thanks, Dad. And uh, I've asked Brother Eric to come and help me uh, because I, this, I, what I want to do is I want to take what Dad has told us in theory and I want to bring it to some practical and let's walk through how do we do it. The difficult part of it for me is it's like riding a bicycle now. How many of you know how to ride a bicycle? How many of you could write out how to ride a bicycle? It's very difficult. You just get on it and do it, right? And so the hard part of this is I'm just going to show you doing it. And I've asked Brother Eric to come and join me so that he can kindly interrupt me from time to time as I'm going along. I might say, you do this, and it might not come across very well. And then he can kind of slow me down and say, hey, wait, what about this or that? And he can ask some practical questions. Maybe you're already thinking it. And at the same time, uh, if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand, and he's going to be watching for those. Um, so I want to make this helpful. I don't want it to be just, bang, let me hit you with this all at one time. A couple of uh, very just practical things that I want to just unload before we jump into it. You'll notice Dad had his laptop here. I also have my laptop here. I don't do that when I'm preaching. Um, when I'm preaching, I want the people to know, thus saith the Lord. And so when I step into the pulpit, I always have my Bible is the preeminent thing that they see. Now, I'll get to this later. I do preach from a manuscript. Uh, typically, my sermon on Sunday morning is 12 pages long. I don't carry 12 pages into the pulpit because I would be all over the place with 12 pages. I do it from an iPad. I have a tablet, and those 12 pages are on the tablet, and, and I'm constantly moving through them. But I do my best to hide it. I'm not hiding it because I'm trying to trick the people. I hide it because I don't want them to think that pastor has to have an iPad in order for us to hear from the Word of God. I want them to hear from the Word of God. And so I will spend my time in preparation, and you'll see typical sermon preparation for me is for a sermon. I'm going to be somewhere between 10 to 12 hours in the study before I come to the pulpit. That's typical. Very normal for me to sit, spend 10 to 12 hours on a single sermon that I'm going to preach. My timing is 51 minutes, plus or minus about two minutes uh, on a sermon delivery. So for that one hour that I'm going to stand before the people, I've spent at least 10 hours in the study, and I want them to hear, thus saith the Lord. And so when I come to the pulpit on Sunday morning, I don't have a laptop here because I don't want them to think you have to have a laptop to hear from the Word of God. I do have an iPad, but it's not preeminent. This is not my normal preaching Bible. My normal preaching Bible is much larger I typically lay my preaching Bible across the top here so that from the seat they see the Word. Do, do you understand? I, I'm going for an image here. It's a very small and very subtle image, but it's an image that's important. I don't want them to miss out on the fact that we're bringing the Word of God today. Also, Dad has mentioned some helps. I want to just make an offer here. Several of you have come from places where you don't have the ability to download. 
There are helps, Bible helps available now. It's 2023, Bible helps that are available and you don't have to be online to use them. If you've got a smartphone or a smart device, I use Olive Tree. How many of you are familiar with Olive Tree? Have used it? Maybe you still use it, Olive Tree? Olive Tree is my go-to. That's my Bible dictionary, my lexicon, my concordance, my, diction, uh, my English dictionary, everything. It's all in there. An amazing amount of this is available for free. How many of you are familiar with Logos? Much fewer of us. I probably have wrapped up, this is tools, I probably have wrapped up three to 4,000 kina in Logos. To be honest, I'm not good at using Logos. Papa John is very good at using Logos. And he's probably got way more than that much money tied up in Logos. I'm not good at it, so I don't use it as much. I use Olive Tree. And guess what? Most of what I use is free. I've got a couple of things that I thought, oh, that's worth purchasing, and I bought as an add-on to Logos. The Logos app is free. It looks like this. Let me see if I can blow that up. It looks like this app here. It's free. You can download it for free. And then, in addition to that, there are other things that are free resources. Oh, here they are right here, they are right here on this page. Free resources in the, down, in the Olive Tree app. The entire Matthew Henry commentary is free, available for download. You've got a study Bible there. I know some of you are going to say it's ESV. Remember that the study Bible notes are not inspired. So make use of the study part, okay? You've got Bible Names Dictionary. Jameson, Fawcett Brown, Charles Spurgeon recommended this. This is a commentary from the 1800s. The entire thing is free. Easton's Bible Dictionary, free. Bible Maps, free. So they have got a lot of information that's available for free on the Olive app. I love the Olive app. We will use part of it later on, and it's part of the study, and I'll show you some options that are in there. If you are not able to download at home, can you stop with more speed? Download is cheap, all right? You're going to drop three kina, five kina, and you're going to have, at certain times, you can drop five kina and get a gig. Am I right? You're not going to touch anywhere near a gig to download this. Spend your own money. If you live here in Morsby, spend your own money. But if you came from an outstation, I'm thinking some of our Gulf brothers, you don't have the ability. I know Pastor Kevin lives in a place where they don't even have network. Pastor Ben, no network. Uh, even Anita, there's no network. If you have no network and you have no way to, uh, to download, I'm going to make it available today. You'll see Acacia during the lunchtime. She'll help you log on to our Wi-Fi. Now, if you've got your own and you're able to do it, drop your five kina and get your own and leave the space for some of these other guys that don't have the ability. But she'll help you log on, download the app, download the helps, download the commentary. It will be on your mobile device. You don't have to be online to use Olive Tree. It's completely available offline. So then that will give you the study tools we talk about using a Bible dictionary or using a commentary, those things, they're going to be available. 
Acacia will help you during the uh, lunchtime. What I'm going to ask, log on, download, and then she's going to help your device to forget the password. Because I don't want you sitting there during the second session using, <laughs> using YouTube, all right? <laughs> all right. Uh, that, some helps for you. What happens when we spend time in the Word? When I take the time to study and I spend time in the Word, what happens? One thing that happens is the Word changes me. You realize the longer you spend in the Word, the more the Word changes you personally. For me to just step into the pulpit and just preach my thoughts, if I don't have the Word already dwelling richly in me, all I'm going to do is preach my thoughts. It will also help me to be more pastoral. There are things that will happen as I'm walking in the Word, I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm being led by the Spirit. That 24-7 that he talked about yesterday, as I'm going to be a pastor 24-7, the Word is dwelling in me. When I step into the pulpit, the Word will be what's proclaimed. But then there's an interesting thing. When you spend 10 hours studying a single passage, when you step into the pulpit to preach, you step in with a confidence, knowing, thus saith the Lord. Do you know what I mean when I say you step in with a confidence? Have you ever stepped into the pulpit and known, I haven't studied this passage. Nobody else knows it, but you know it. But if you've studied the passage and you've studied it well and you know it, you're going to step into the pulpit knowing what I speak today is coming from God. And there's a difference in the delivery. You don't have to shout and scream. And Now listen, brothers, you listen to my sermons online, you'll hear me shout and scream. There'll be moments when I just slip into it and here it comes because it's a passion that's overflowing from the Word. But I don't have to go there in order for people to hear from the Lord. I can just come and declare, thus saith the Lord. And that's what I want, is I want our people to hear, thus saith the Lord. And when I've spent the time in study, I can step in. Some things that might be of help. When you go to your study, set aside a day. Ten hours, that's a day. For me in this season of life right now, that's for me is Thursdays. So this week, I knew that Thursday I was going to be in here. So this week, my study day moved to Wednesday. So some of what I'm going to walk through with you guys today is what I did on Wednesday. So you'll get a, a chance to see. Some of you that are church members will get to see what's coming on Sunday. <laughs> they get a preview of what's, what's coming on Sunday. Set aside a day every week. You need to do that early in your calendar. Please, prepare Sunday's sermon on Saturday night. If you do that, you cheapen the holiness of God. You are proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. You should hold it with a seriousness. So my most important day of the week is Sunday. My second most important day of the week is the day when I prepare for Sunday. And so I set aside for me this season, Thursdays, and why do I choose Thursdays? Because Monday, I'm exhausted. 
and I don't feel like I'm going to be ready to unpack the word with what I need physically. So Monday, I tend to keep a bit lighter for my schedule. And Tuesday, now I'm starting to have that new renewed vigor, but I'm able to concentrate on things administratively that the church needs. So I have pastoral staff meetings on Tuesday mornings, department head meetings for our school on Tuesday mornings. Wednesday, now I'm starting to think about what's coming on Sunday. Those of you that are pastors know Sunday comes every week. You never get a Sunday off. It comes every week. Pastors, you should be speaking in your pulpit every week. Your people need to hear from you as their pastor every week. If you're spending more time preaching away at other places, your church doesn't see you as their pastor. They need to be hearing from you. And Sunday comes every week. So by Wednesday, I'm putting my mind into the passage. So then Thursday morning, for me, about 7.15, 7.20, I'm sitting down at my desk, and you'll get to see the process. Thursday afternoon, I'm finished with my sermon. I've got everything ready for Sunday. Friday, I continue to think back on it. Saturday, I take my, this is my schedule. You do it how it works for you. Saturday, I take a day off with my wife. I enjoy that. And by the way, I schedule that also. The guys that are security guards at our front gate, they know if somebody shows up on Sunday morning, Ryan's one of our security guards, I'm going to let you answer the question. Somebody shows up at the gate on Sunday morning, a Saturday morning and asks to see me, what's the answer, Ryan? Do you have a meeting with Pastor Matt? If somebody randomly shows up at the gate on Saturday morning, his question is, do you have a meeting? And if they don't have a meeting, oh, Pastor Matt's already in a meeting. Am I right? Pastor Matt's in a meeting every Saturday morning until 11 o'clock. You know what my meeting is? With my wife. Brothers, take your relationship with your wife seriously. If I don't schedule that with my wife every Saturday morning until 11 o'clock, she'll get put on the back burner and something else will become important. That relationship with your wife. Saturday, the afternoon, I'll fiddle around with some projects. Maybe I'm going to do some work in the yard, something like that. And Saturday evening, before I go to bed, I read through my manuscript. That way, Saturday night, when I go to sleep, I'm already thinking about it. And Sunday morning, I get up, I'm thinking about it. All right? That's my schedule. Sunday morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, I get up. This is every Sunday, 4 o'clock in the morning, I get up on Sunday morning. And then I read through my, my manuscript. I read through it two or three times. Make sure that I do graphics with my speaking. Make sure that all the graphics line up. I make sure I don't have misspellings on Bible verses. Everything, all of that is set. And then by 6 o'clock, I'm ready. 6 o'clock, I leave the study. I'm ready to go. 6 o'clock, this is my schedule. I iron my shirts at the foot of the bed. My wife sits in the bed with a cup of coffee. I bring her a cup of coffee at 6 o'clock. She sits in the bed, drinks a cup of coffee, and I preach the sermon to my wife first. Most people don't know that. I preach the sermon to my wife. Sometimes we treat this as the oracles of God. What I have is for me, and it will first be delivered to his people. Guess what, guys? You might first deliver it, and it falls flat on its face. Your wife will be able to tell you that. And I'm thankful that my wife will listen, and she'll help and give some input. She might say, you know, what you just said doesn't really make sense. Can you say it a different way? 
I'll give her the illustrations I'm going to walk, walk through. And I've actually had time. You know what? What you just said is just like something that I heard over there, and I think, why didn't I think of that? I should have thought of that. And there's been a couple of times where her statement at that 6 o'clock meeting ends up making its way into the sermon. Uh, God gives people in our lives to help speak in for the edification of the body. I might encourage take a holistic approach to your preaching. In other words, uh, you dug the well. Don't be afraid to come back to it. All right? You dug the well. Now, don't go pulling water out of somebody else's well. You dig the well. You do the study. Know what the text says. But don't be afraid to come back to that well. It's okay. Come back to that well. It may show up in future sermons, things that you studied for this sermon, but it didn't make it into this sermon. Remember, Papa John said you're going to study a lot of things, and you might not bring all of that to this sermon. A few weeks ago, I did came down to the final. This is what I'm going to present on Sunday morning. I ended up cutting out one big portion, and I didn't know what's going to happen with this one portion. I printed it off, and I just stuck it over on the side. It showed up two weeks later in a different sermon. I'd done that preparation before. It just didn't fit with the flow of the presentation for that Sunday. Put it off to the side. If I never use it, it's okay. God was using it to grow me. So there's a, a big part of it. Uh, pay attention to your audience. Pay attention to your audience. So during the course of a week, I typically will preach to our people. Right now I've got an intern, and I'll talk about the intern later. But typically, if I'm, I don't have the intern, I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. Then on Sunday evening, I go down and preach at ExxonMobil. Then on Monday, I preach in chapel at our school. Then on Wednesday evening, would be uh, preaching in our, we have a small group Bible study on Wednesday evening. I'll speak in that as well. There's nothing wrong with letting that study overlap itself. You don't have to go reinvent a new well for this one and a new well for that one and a new well for that one. It's okay to pull different things from the same well, right? The Word of God is rich. How I present here on Sunday morning to our congregation is going to be different from how I present to ExxonMobil. I might have to put some things down on a lower shelf for people that are unsaved in this setting, children in this setting, where in that setting, I've got a whole bunch of grown men, uh, that grown men and grown ladies, that I don't have to drop it down to the children's level there. At the same time, I can go a little bit deeper here than I can there because those guys have just come off of a 12-hour work shift. I can't go deep there. I'm going to have to keep it flowing. I might preach 51 minutes for my congregation Sunday morning here, where I'll, I'll only preach 35 minutes there. Can't go 51 minutes. They're going to all fall asleep. So know your audience. Pay attention to your audience. Be looking for feedback from your audience. And then one more thing. Be a good reader. So you're spending time in the Word, but also be looking for other authors. Be listening, reading, and you have no idea, when you come to the sermon preparation, what God might bring from an author that you read a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. I prepared a sermon 
uh, from Rome, uh, Revelation 4 and 5, and I preached it in the States a couple of years ago, and it has actually, it's a bit of a viral message, and it's been repeated and shared a lot. That sermon was two years in preparation. It sparked with something that I had heard two years before. I heard another preacher, and he was a young guy. He was a pastoral intern. He made a statement from Revelation 4, and it just planted a seed in my head. I held on to that seed, and I listened and let that seed just soak up. It wasn't until two years later that I actually wrote the sermon out. It took probably 20 or 30 hours of preparation for that sermon. But when I delivered it, oh my goodness, how the Lord took that and blessed it. So you have no idea what things you're gathering may end up coming out later on. But it's okay. Be gathering. Be reading. Reading is, is important. Yes, sir. Um, question. Um, could you give us a suggestion of what good authors are that you yeah, consult? Yeah, yeah, um, Okay, so several authors. Oh, boy. There's, we can go all kinds of wide here. Let me give you a principle. Eat the meat and throw away the bones. That's how you do with crabs. That's how you do with fish. Eat the meat, throw away the bones. All right? And so I'm going to give you some authors that I read after, and I have no problem with reading after them because I know that there's bones in amongst them. And, and I might even say, if I think if I wrote a book 20 years from now, I probably wouldn't agree with everything that I, I myself wrote. All right? Um, so I read. These are the guys that I read after regularly. I would read after John Piper. And I know that if you know Piper, you'll know he's a Calvinist. He calls himself a seven-point Calvinist. That's more than five-point. I'm not two and a half points. But I do know that he loves the glory of God. And if you can grasp the glory of God from John Piper, oh, you will have a brand new love for the glory of God. I take all of his election stuff and throw it out the window. Eat the meat and throw, out, throw away the bones. Uh, John Piper is good. Uh, Tim Keller is not a creationist. He does not believe that God created in six days. Take that and throw it out the window. But Keller does a very good job of reaching people where they are. He's able to bring things and just put them on the, on the plate. MacArthur. How many of you have read anything by John MacArthur? John MacArthur. I, eat the meat, throw away the bones. He tends towards, he, he gets blamed for lordship salvation. And yet, he believes very strongly that if you are going to repent and you're going to be right with God, you're going to actually be right with God. I can't fault a guy that's going to go that far. And so, perhaps, he leans a bit too strongly that way. And none of these, by the way, none of these are King James guys. I am. None of them are. Eat the meat, throw away the bones. MacArthur is very good when it comes to the suffering of our Savior. Oh, if you want to read The Suffering of Our Savior, Isaiah 53, it's a fantastic book on that. Um, so I would recommend those. Anything by Joel Olstein, don't even touch it. <laughs> Joyce Meyer, don't touch it. Dad already mentioned those. T.D. Jakes, throw it away. Because the guy can stand in front of a camera and he can preach with passion and sweat drop, dripping down his face doesn't mean that he's got quality material. T.D. Jakes... T.D. Jakes doesn't believe in the, in the Trinity. That's a fundamentalism problem. If he doesn't believe in the Trinity, there is no meat. All right? Uh, so 
I, those are the ones that come to my mind off the top off the top of my head. Do you want to add any add in any, Dad? Mm. From a publishing standpoint, if you see something from nine marks, it's the number nine and the word marks, nine marks, and that's they. I think they published the expository preaching book. Uh, again, they're not King James, but they've got quality material. Um, they have quality material. Obviously, you've already received David Helm's book by uh, on expository preaching. I think that is probably the best book currently available on expository preaching. Um, They've got books on deacons. What, how do you handle having deacons? They've got books on uh, what does a, a healthy church look like? Um, so Mark Dever wrote the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, so I think anything that, anything that Nine Marks publishes, again, learn how to eat meat and throw away bones. That's okay. Because if you're looking for somebody that, only, that you agree with 100%, you're not going to find anybody that you agree with 100%. And I'll, I'll put a plug in for writing, brethren. Right now we have a problem. We don't have good, independent, Baptist, fundamental authors right now. But I hope you understand, my dream is, and I'm getting the gift of seeing Brother Eric take this with IFBC Tribune. This is the birth of good independent Baptist authors from our context. What's the next step after IFBC Tribune? Publishing. And I see in our future the ability for us to do that. I don't want you to think, well, I can't write because nobody's going to publish it. Oh, yes, there are people that are wanting to publish. We just need the content. So you get the content. It needs to be quality. You know how to spell? Find somebody that can help you with your spelling. You don't know how to check grammar? Get somebody that can ch check grammar. Because before I publish it, I will check it for spelling and grammar. And if it has spelling and grammar problems, I'm going to send it right back to you. <laughs> okay? We don't have good Bible bookstores. I want to have good Bible bookstores. Give us time. I want to be there. But I don't want to just build a Bible bookstore to sell books from overseas. We need to be able to publish our own and make available our own. For what it's worth, I know, because we're into publishing already for Christian curriculum, I know that we can get books printed in quality, and we can get them here landed for about 14 to 15 kina a copy. Surprise, it can be done. Put that on the shelf at 20 kina, and I think just about every one of us is ready to buy a good quality book written by one of us for 20 kina. It'll fly off the shelf, and it's sustainable. So just letting you know it's possible. Why not us? We can. 
And so if you've got the gift to write, do it. Be writing. Pick a topic. Start talking to Brother Eric. Start putting articles out. How do you get your name out there as an author? Start writing articles. It's possible, okay? Uh, Brother Eric, does that answer your question? I kind of went a bit off topic. Sorry. All right, so if you come to the office and now it's time for you to start studying, uh, make use of a couple of tools. Uh, if you've got a cell phone, make use of the off button. Uh, how many of you get notifications on your phone? WhatsApp notification, Facebook Messenger notification, me Facebook notification, uh, Instagram notification. Uh, be a, do a gift to yourself, brethren. Turn those notifications off. That can be a very big gift to you. When you come to the study, turn the phone off. At the very least, make use of the do not disturb option. Set it off to the side. You say, but what if somebody needs to get a hold of me? I promise you, you're not so important that somebody's got to be able to get a hold of you. There are other people that they can get a hold of. Maybe they can get a hold of your wife. You can speak with your wife about this. I do that. I have Brother Eric. Is my, is the, he's the administrator of the school here. He is my right-hand man in this ministry. If somebody needs to get a hold of me and they can't get a hold of me, they already know to get a hold of him. And he knows how to get a hold of me when I'm in my study. Off. Do not disturb. Because the devil knows that if he can get a hold of you during your study, that he will be able to distract you. And if he can distract you, you're not going to dive deep. You're not going to get to know the word. Make use of the off button. It's a gift. Another thing that might be of help is a timer or an alarm. So maybe you put your phone to do not disturb, or you switch off the, uh, the ability to have data, uh, put your phone on do not disturb, and then make use of an alarm. Now, why do I say that? Because I have the ability now, after years of doing this, this is a, this is a skill that's learned. I have the ability to sit at the desk, and I can go for two hours without having to step away shut everything out, I will dive. And brethren, it is glorious. And I will dive, and I will go down, and I will study, and we'll look at this corner and look at that corner, and I'll give you some tips on how to do that and how to do it undistracted, but I did not start with the ability to go for two hours. I started with the ability to go for about 15 minutes. Now, here's why that timer is important. Set an alarm, set it for 15 minutes self-discipline yourself, this timer is going to be the one that tells me that I have the permission to go somewhere else. I'm going to set that timer, put it over to the side, and it's 15 minutes, and for the next 15 minutes, I'm doing nothing else. I'm diving. You know these guys that dive down in the water? They didn't, some of those guys can go down, and they can be down there for a long time, but they didn't start off that way. They built up the stamina and the ability to do it. It took practice. The same thing is with study. You will not be able to, you will go bonkers if you tell yourself you're going to go for two hours. So you're going to do just 15 minutes. Maybe you only do 10 minutes. Set a timer, and for the next 10 minutes, next 15 minutes, I'm doing nothing but studying and meditating on this passage. So make use of it. It's a gift. It's a, it's a tool that you can make use of. And then... When you come to the text, be ready for the text to shape you. Oh, uh, Pastor Grona knows the word, eisegesis. That's the big word. Eisegesis is I'm coming to the text and I'm bringing my thoughts and I'm going to make them fit in this text. 
oh, no, 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 thou shalt not. I'm going to come to this text completely free, and I'm going to ask God to speak to me from this text. That's exegesis. Out of this text, I want what does God say to his people, and what's he say out of this text? So I'm going to come to the text wiped. And i got to tell you, brethren, so many times I've come to a text thinking, I know what this passage says. It happened on Wednesday. So I'm preaching a series right now on Easter, because it's Easter. So I had planned, I was going to do three sermons. My first sermon was crucifixion. This is my plan. First sermon the week before Palm Sunday, that's the crucifixion. Then I was going to do the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And then my plan was the third sermon I was going to do, uh, why is the resurrection important? All right, so that was my plan. One, two, three. And, and you guys help me. Where would I find in the scriptures, where would I find the crucifixion? What, what, what chapters? Where am I going to find that? John 19, Luke 23, Matthew 27, right? right? So those are given. So I want to preach on the crucifixion. I'm going to go to those passages. All right, now, resurrection. Where are we going to go? Matthew 28, the rest of John 19 and 20, right? So we're, we're just moving one chapter. Now, importance of the resurrection, where are we going? How important is the resurrection to you as a believer? What chapter are you going to go to? 1 Corinthians 15, amen. 1 Corinthians 15. So that was my plan. You guys already saw that, right? I mapped it out. Crucifixion, resurrection, why is it important? And I came to 1 Corinthians 15 for study on Wednesday. Some of you guys help me. Why is the resurrection important? 1 Corinthians 15, what does it say? Why is the resurrection important? Therein is the gospel. This is right. Anything else? For if Christ be not raised, then are you? Your faith is in vain. That's exactly what I came to 1 Corinthians 15 thinking. I'm ready. I'm walking into it. I'm ready. I'm going to preach that passage this coming Sunday. All I've got to do is study it. And guess what happened? I studied it and I realized there's something here that if I only preach those three verses, I missed the context of 1 Corinthians 15. I will be preaching part of thus saith the Lord, but mostly thus saith Matt. And that's dangerous. You do how you want to do. In our church, I talk with our pastoral staff about preaching calendar. So I've got already planned. I'm going to do this Easter. Then we're going to do five weeks in Ruth. Then we're going to do five weeks in uh, marriage. We're going to come to a topic, and I'll approach it expositorily. So if I deviate from this plan, it's going to mess up that plan, right? You see that? I texted. I'm, I'm in the middle of study. I texted the pastoral staff. Brethren, I don't think I can faithfully preach 1 Corinthians 15 in one passage, in, in one sermon. I can't do it. Because there's more in the context that needs to be unpacked. And if I try to unpack that in one sermon, nobody's going to get it. I need to be faithful and unpack this. So guess what? I told him at that point, I think we're going to end up having two more sermons in 1 Corinthians 15. But in the course of study, 
I was able to shorten it down. It'll be two sermons. Because there's a major theme that comes out of 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to walk through some of that with you so you can see. So here's what I mean by I come to the text and let the text shape the sermon. Expository preaching is preaching that takes the main point of the text and makes it the main point of the sermon. It's not sequential preaching. All right, sequential preaching is, let me read verse 1 and verse 2, and I'll explain it, and then I'll read verse 3 and verse 4, and I'll explain it, and verse 5, and I'm going to explain it, and then verse 6, and I'll explain it. That's sequential, a running commentary. That's not expository preaching, or Papa John's calling it biblical preaching. Biblical preaching, expository preaching is I look at the passage. What does the passage say? What is the point of the passage? Now that's the point of my message. And everything within this is going to point to that major point. Are we following? Brother Eric, are we good? All right, come over to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll walk through this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I... The first thing that I did, and you're welcome to write these down, I'll, I'll do my best to kind of bullet point. I've not written out these bullet points. The first thing that I did when I came to this passage was I read the text within its context. So 1 Corinthians 15, if you know the context of 1 Corinthians, uh, who wrote it? Paul did. Wrote to whom? The church at Corinth. What's going on at the time that he writes that? I heard somebody say something, but I didn't hear it. Sorry. There's problems. There's problems in the church. And they've got, if ever there's a church, Galatian churches fell in heresy. Corinthian churches, the Corinthians church fell in sin. And he names them one chapter after another. Chapter 5, morality problems, and the church is puffed up about it. Chapter 6, they're taken each other to court. Chapter 7, there's problems with relationships and the home. One after another, he's just hitting these problems. So then he comes to chapter 15, and there's another problem that he hits in chapter 15. So having in mind that there are problems in the church tells us that he isn't just writing chapter 15 as if, oh, by the way, I'm almost done with this letter. Let me tell you about the resurrection. There was a problem in the church, and the problem, I'll go ahead and tell you what it was. The problem was, some of the people thought there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. This not being my preaching Bible, you bear with me while I find it. Verse 13. Uh, verse 12. That he addresses the problem in verse 12, and he shows us that that's the problem. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? That's another problem in the church. So this helps us. It's a clue to help us that he's staying within, we're staying within the context of the greater letter. Let's take an, some added historical fact. Who started the church at Corinth? Paul did. Paul starts the church. We know from the book of Acts that he stayed there for about 18 months, started the church, left, Here's about the problems. Chapter 1, uh, the household of Chloe. Somebody from the household of Chloe told him about these problems. And now he writes the letter back. You come to the second book, uh, second book to the Corinthians, and you find out that Paul actually has a moment of remorse that he sent the letter. 
in 2 Corinthians, he says, I feel bad that I sent you the letter. At first, I felt bad about it, but now I don't feel so bad because you guys corrected your problems, and I'm really glad I sent the letter. But there for a little while, I was upset about it. These are historical things that you've got to get outside of 1 Corinthians 15, right? And so the good news is the more time you spend studying those things, they end up adding pieces to the puzzle. You don't get those in the first day. And I'll go ahead and say this. By just reading Matthew Henry, you're probably not going to get it either. You've got to spend the time in the Word. And you spend more time in the Word, and then you start seeing. And some of it is a piece of the puzzle that you will use in this sermon, and some of it you might not use for another year. But you're collecting pieces, and you're learning these things. So when I come to 1 Corinthians 15 now, my first step is I'm going to read this, and I'm probably going to read it within its context. Spurgeon said that he wouldn't preach from a book of the Bible until he had read that book of the Bible 50 times. Can you imagine if you read the book of James 50 times straight? You'd probably know the book of James pretty well. I'm not going to say I go to 50 times. Wednesday when I sat down, I read 1 Corinthians 15 start to finish. I read it three times straight through. Didn't write anything down. Didn't make any notes. I read it through three times. When I read that chapter through three times... I very easily was able to outline the chapter. This way he's doing, this way he's doing, this way he's doing. And that's what led me to think there's something going on in the context here that I cannot just preach this in one, in one go. Yes, sir. Another yeah. Question. Um, the question is, what makes you see an outline in a passage when you read it three times? How do you see that outline? There are key words. That's a great question. There are key words that you need to be looking for. Um, so I'll just point out a couple of them. Uh, how many of you have got a Bible that already has like paragraphs broken down and there's like little headers over the paragraph? How many of you got that? Those can be of help, but remember they're not inspired. Okay? Someone came along, probably the guy who wrote your Bible, your study Bible. He's probably the one that put those headers in. Remember they're not inspired, but they can be of help. Um, I see the, the keys to me is, verse, say, verse 12. Now. You see that? So if you're, if you're writing and you're writing an argument, you're going to write your argument, come, 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 and the word now is giving you a clue that there's a change in thought. So as I was outlining the, that chapter, I'm going, okay, here's what he's saying. He's made this statement, and now he's kind of, he's staying in topic, but he's coming to have another look at a different view of it. There's another one at verse 35 where he comes back, and actually I'll tell you, verse 35 is my clue for why this can't be preached all in one message. Verse 35, he comes back to the very same problem that was in verse 12. But some will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? So verse 12, he starts into, and, and I'm just going to, I'll go ahead and tell you. Verse 12, he starts into a line of thinking that says, how important is it to your salvation that Jesus is raised from the dead? So from verse 13 to verse 34, he's talking about how important is the resurrection to your salvation. Then verse 
35, he begins to talk about what body is the dead raised with. And from verse 36 to the end of the chapter, he answers a second part of the question, how important is the resurrection of Christ to your resurrection? So in this passage, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ is important, but it's important for two reasons, one for your salvation and one for your future after your own death. Now you can get an idea of where, why am I going to preach this in two weeks? So I can't take those two and stuff them into one sermon. One sermon, how important is the resurrection? And you remember the, the question that we started with? Crucifixion, resurrection, why is the resurrection important? It's important for two reasons. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's important for two reasons. One, for your salvation. And second, because your resurrection, your resurrection hinges on his resurrection. So that's both of those coming out of 1 Corinthians 15. That, that answer? You, be looking for... Here, I'll give you another one. Look at verse, uh, chapter 16 and verse 1. Now concerning... You see the chapter 16, verse 1 starts with now concerning. So in chapter 16, he's going to address the cons now concerning the collection for the saints. Talking about offerings. Look back to chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Let's see if he does it again. Is there another now concerning at the beginning of a chapter? Anybody see another one? Chapter 7. Now concerning the things, do you see a theme going there? So he's changing from topic to topic, and he's given us some clues with the words, right? When you read, read for those. I'm going to speak from my own experience here. When I, when I learned to preach, I didn't preach this way. I preached more in line with, here's a verse... And in this verse, there's a phrase, and that phrase, I've heard someone else preach, and they preach really powerfully about that phrase. And those words are important words, so I'm going to preach that phrase. And I completely missed what God was saying to his people. Now, my brother Nate calls it the truth bus. You're, you're preaching on the truth bus. That's what my brother Nate says. He's a pastor too. Nate, said, Nate says it like this. You're on the truth bus. means what you're saying is true, but it wasn't true from that passage. <laughs> that passage had a different truth. <laughs> you were on the truth bus, but you weren't in the right chair. And, and you want to be tr preaching truth, but preach it from the correct chair. right? And so when I'm going to preach on giving, I'll just use example, I'm going to preach on giving in missions. I'm not going to preach from 2 Corinthians 8. Because 2 Corinthians 8 is not, pre is not preaching, is not a passage about giving in missions. It's giving to the poor. You, you've got to read the verses within its context. There are other, uh, preaching on giving to missions is important. It's truth, but it's not truth from 2 Corinthians 8. There are some good principles about giving from 2 Corinthians 8, but not giving to missions. You follow me? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. So I read through several times. Wednesday morning, I started off, started reading through, read through, me personally, read through three times. I've got a general idea of what the context is. 
I, I might say, like, if you're running the dinghy, I've just run the dinghy in the bay, all right? I've run the dinghy in the bay, and we've gone around a couple of times, and I've got a good idea of the layout, and this is a deep part, and that one's a shallow part, and this is what it looks like. But I can't really tell you what's down underneath. I just have a general idea, all right? Then what you see here is a picture. This is, I just took this picture when I got to this point in my study. Um, so that's my Bible sitting there and uh, A4 blank piece of paper and a pen. I got, this here is colored pens. You don't have to do that, but I, I do it because it helps me. So I've got a set of colored pens, and I've just about worn these out. In fact, there's one already missing because it it's all dried up now. Um, and just this, these, are my, these are my study pens. I think this will cost you about... 25 Kina Theodist. It's worthy investment for tools, right? And I don't use it for anything else. It sits on my desk and I pull it out once a week. Let's see if we can keep it up there. I don't know how to. Papa John's better at that than me. And then I write it out. I'm going to make a note here. When I started, I wrote verses 1 to 11 because I thought that was the end of the main thought. I will go ahead and tell you, I realized as I studied this that this main thought continues on. And so I end up adding on, you'll see this later, I end up adding on because I want the text to speak to me and that's what I'm going to bring to God's people, not me coming to the text. All right. So I just wrote this out, handwrite it, and I do it every time. Uh, in a minute I'll pass around, I've got probably the last eight sermons or so and I'll just pass them around. I hold on to them just for the fun of it. Um, and then, So this is, this is handwritten. I've seen guys will take this step and they'll just copy and paste. You can do that. You could just go to Olive Tree and copy and paste the verses and stick them over on a piece of paper. But guess what's happening when I'm, when I'm writing? This is me. You do how you want to. But when I'm writing, you know what I'm doing? Dwelling in the Word of God richly. So as I look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 and I physically write it on a piece of paper... It's coming in my eye, and it's going through my head, and it's coming out my hand, and I'm getting to know the words better. Sometimes, and I don't know if you've ever done something like this, I'll just example. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. And maybe in my head, I'll read that, and I'll start to write it, but then as I write it, maybe I miswrite it. Maybe I put a wrong word in. Guess what that does to me? Whenever I write the wrong word, it tells me I have a misunderstanding of what the text said. I don't want to have a misunderstanding of the text. So I read it, then I write it, write a couple of that, that phrase, read it, write that phrase, read it, write that phrase, and you'll notice that I'm leaving space on the piece of paper. Because I'm going to mark this thing all up. But I do want the words that are on here to be exactly the words that are from the scriptures. Because the way I'm going to mark this piece of paper up, I don't want to do that to my Bible, right? So here's step one. Then the second step after that, I don't know how well you're going to be able to see this, but then I come back through with a pencil, so I've got a mechanical pencil here, and I start writing a paraphrase of what it, the text says. So first step was just write the text out, now the next step is I take a pencil and I walk through and I read it and I reword it into my own words. What does this say? Put it in my own words. Now, I want you to get something. I've not touched a commentary. I've not touched a commentary. 
Commentary is last step. I'll go there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat the commentary like poison at this stage. Because if I'm not careful, I'll read the commentary, and the commentary will cloud my thinking. I want this to be the Word of God speaking to me so that I can speak to His people. So I'm not touching outside helps right now. So I'll take and I'll write through here in pencil, and you'll notice here I've got a circle here. So this is, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, and, uh, and wherein you stand. The wherein. So I, what I've done here with my pencil, I circled wherein, and I circled gospel, because wherein goes back to gospel. So it's, the gospel is wherein you stand. So the word wherein, it, it means it's, it's, it's connected to something, right? So I just connected it with my pencil. That makes it easy for me to see. You, you stand wherein? You stand in the gospel. And then the next verse, by which also you are saved. And the word which, that word which is connected to something. It's connected to what? It's connected back to the gospel. So now that's setting a tone for this passage that what we're talking about, resurrection, is tied to the gospel. I'm unpacking this. I'm just putting it in my own words as I go along. Now you'll notice here, I wrote in yellow, and you probably can't read it from where you're at. But what I did here is I made myself a note because remember, we run the dinghy around for a while in the bay. I know where we're at. Now we're starting to dive down. And you know, if you're not careful, you'll dive down, and I'll just use an analogy for guys that are diving. If you dive down, you can dive down and find yourself a cave down there, and you'll end up going down inside the cave, and you'll run out of air. Right? Talk picture. But it's good if you're going to map it out. You dive down, you see a cave. Just make a note of it. There's a cave. Later, off, later on, I'll come back and I'll have a look at this cave. There's a cave here, and there's a cave there, and there's a cave there. I'm just going to make note of it. So when I'm working through, I saw a cave here. Here's the cave. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he's going to say according to the Scriptures again the next verse, and he was raised again according to the Scriptures. Here's the cave in my mind. I came to that... Here's the cave. According to the scriptures, Christ died on the cross according to the scriptures. Every time you see the word scriptures used in the New Testament, here's where my mind went. Every time you see the word scriptures used in the New Testament, it's always referring to the Old Testament. But where does it say in the Old Testament that Christ died on the cross for our sins? And where does it say that he rose from the dead? That's a cave you can get lost in. At this stage in the study. So I just took my yellow pen, underlined it, and I wrote on the side. Where is this recorded? In the Old Testament? Question mark. What scriptures? I want to explore that but I know that right now it's going to pull me away. So I just made a note. I'll come back to it. And then I keep going. Oh, my goodness. One of kind, laptop, yeah. Keep coming down. Um, as I'm going through, I noted that there's some similarities here. And in fact, let me just do this with you. I've already marked them. I don't want you to see my markings yet, so I'm going to use this screen here. 
and I want you to help me and see what is repeated. Some of you guys that have done this for a longer period of time are going to see it immediately. Some of you that this is new to, you're going to go, what? What are you talking about? There's two words that get repeated on this. It's on this screen, 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is 3 to 8. Oh, no, 3 down to 11. Just stay up here in 3 to 8 for right now. So let's stay in this section. There's two words that just keep getting repeated. Has somebody picked them out? What are the two words? And, and that. And that. And then what else? There's another two words that keep getting repeated. After that. Right? You realize the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. He never wastes his breath. And so whenever the Holy Spirit repeats something in Scripture, you better be paying attention. So as I'm studying down through the Scriptures and I'm, I've written it out, sometimes I start seeing it as soon as I start writing it out, but when I start going, coming through with pencil, I definitely start seeing these things. If something's repeated, I'm going to be starting making note of it. All right, so here we come back to this screen. Sorry about the markers. And you'll see on this screen that I've made mark of them here, 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 here. And that, and that, after that, after that. So what's he doing? So when we're in this context of this passage, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. Christ was seen of. And he was buried. And that, he was buried. And they rose again, according to the scriptures. And, can't read my own writing. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Of the greater home part, this is a parenthesis, right? The greater part of those are still alive today. Some of them have fallen asleep. Then verse 7, after that, he was seen of James. And last of all, he was seen of me. See, this is a very natural outline. Now you can naturally outline it. The resurrection is tied to the gospel. We've already picked that up. Resurrection is tied to the gospel. There's evidence of the gospel, uh, evidence of the resurrection, and the evidence is Cephas, the 12, 500, most still alive. Do you see the James and the apostles last me? Right, so this is giving us an outline that's going to work its way into the sermon. We'll take a break in just a moment, but I want you to hear some words that I hear regularly from people when they come, they sit in the preaching, and they leave. And these are the words that encourage my soul. They say this, I feel like God spoke to me from his word today. The words that I don't get excited about. Pastor, that was powerful preaching. When they walk out and they say that was powerful preaching, guess who they're putting up on the pedestal? But when they walk out and they say, I heard from God in his word today, that's what I want them to see. I want them to see the word. I get to stand in the pulpit and declare, thus saith the Lord. I get to stand in the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, and I know that he said it because I spent time diving, right? And they get to go out knowing they've heard from the Lord today. And there's a little thing that I'm working on that I don't say 
audibly, but I show weekly, and I hope is sinking in to my church members, and here's what I'm showing them. You too, you can look at the Word, and the Word can speak to you too. If I stand and I preach, here's my point, here's my point, here's my point, and it's alliterated, and it's well put together, and I have a great presentation, but they can't see it in the text, they go home and they think, I have to have my pastor tell me what God says. I want my people to go home and say, I can open the Word of God and I can let God speak to me from His Word. So we'll come back after lunch. Am I at the right lunch break time? Is that right? Okay, so we'll, we'll come back after lunch and we'll continue on through this process. Uh, if you've got questions, feel free. Let Brother Eric know. You can raise your hand at the, we come into the second part. Let's have a word of prayer and I can pray for lunch. Are, are they good? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to spend some time together uh, looking at your word and how it is that your word speaks to us. I pray that we would be faithful to the scriptures and may we do our very best as men of God to declare your word to your people. The very same Holy Spirit that penned it. It's the very same Holy Spirit that dwells within your people. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to bring, thus saith the Lord, for it is for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy the lunch, guys. In 14, 15, 16, and they just happened to be on my desk this morning when I was preparing the lesson. So you can have a look and see uh, what, like the steps, right? And so we talk about writing it out. This is my process. You don't have to do it exactly this way, uh, but it's find a way that you're going to be in the text. You want to be in the Word. Spend time in the Word. If you're not spending time in the Word and you step into the pulpit, then you're just going to be speaking your own mind. Um, so we've got spending time in the text. That's our, our current goal. So let me see if I'm on. Jump over to a screen for you guys. This one. Dad said it would be better if I zoomed in a little bit. Two-finger pinch on that sort of thing. All right, so in, if you'll also have 1 Corinthians 15, feel free, pass those around. It's just an opportunity to, for you to see. It's the, kind of the, what is the process? You good? Okay. Things that I'm looking for. When I'm, when I'm walking through the first time, I'm, 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 I've written it out. As I'm writing it out, I've already read it. I have a general idea, the big picture, what's going on. I'm writing out, and as I'm writing out, I'm looking for repetition, what sort of things are being repeated. I'm looking for words that maybe I don't really know exactly what the word means. Dad said yesterday, me born lo talk English, and I still me no sabe lo talk English. <laughs> All right? And there are words that still have, especially if you're using a King James Version, there's going to be words that are in the King James that carry an old meaning in English that you aren't going to be familiar with. And so it's good the way I do it. Grab my pen, colored pen, circle it. You'll see on this one, I used blue. My, I used a light blue pen to circle words that I just want to be able to come back. Again, to use our talk picture, 
Then you run on top of the water, finish me looking corner corner, but me no look him inside straight. Now I'm jumping down and I've got the diving goggles on and I'm seeing that there's a cave over here and I'm going to look at that cave later. I'm going to come over here and look at that one. And I'm going to look at some of those things are what's the meaning of that word? Uh, and, and I'm going to dive in. I'm going to look at things like is that word repeated in this passage? Is it repeated in this book? Is it repeated by this author in a different book? Because we say Scripture interprets Scripture. So what's going on with sometimes an author will use a word that a different author might use a different word with a similar meaning. But this author might use that word and he has a different way of seeing that word and you're going to get more of that picture from a different book. Paul, writing one of his 13 books. That's my jab back at that, all right? <laughs> or Luke, writing one of his two or three, right? I'm just, <laughs> just joking around that, <laughs> if you were following yesterday. So this is first, first draft through. All right, second draft through. Now this is second draft through. And uh, I mentioned earlier... Connecting the word gospel through the first two verses. Then as I came down through, I wanted to see what's going on here with the scriptures. Where else is it recorded? In the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind, it's my memory that's telling me when the New Testament says scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament. That's, my, that's what my memory is saying. Is that the case? If I dive down into that cave, I might run out of might run out of, out of air while I'm down there. So I'm just going to make a note of it. But it's definitely something that needs to be looked at and researched. I look down through here. Okay, here we go. Verse number 6. After that, he was seen of 500 brethren at once, and of the, whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Those of you that are pastors... How many of you feel that the term fallen asleep is very important pastorally? Pastorally, those of you that are coming up and preaching, the term fallen asleep pastorally is where our hope lies. You'll notice, it's going to be hard to see in this, but I've taken a red pen and I've underlined this. I'm going to be watching for this phrase to show up again in the, in the passage. By the way, it does. It shows up two more times. But I made a note on the side. I'm going to want to come back and explore this. Fallen asleep. Important. I just made this note. Important use of the word, especially in the context of resurrection. Right? So they've fallen asleep. And he just introduces that idea here. He didn't say Jesus fell asleep. He said some of those people, the 500, fell asleep. And you guys help me. When he said they fell asleep, what did he mean? They're dead. They're dead. But he said fell asleep. And he's helping us with an image that's going to come into play later. I just made a note of it here. That's going to be worth bringing out in the sermon because it's a part of the passage. Okay? I come down further. Another thing here. He, he was seen of James. He was seen of James. I put in parentheses. His brother? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Because I don't know. 
Is that James's brother, or is it James the Less, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee? I don't know. How much does that impact this passage? So it's a cave I want to explore. But if I explore it right now, I might end up spending so much time down there that I, I lose the big picture. So I just made a mark of it. Then we came down, you see verses 7 and 8, uh, more of the and that, and that, and that. Um, and last, he was seen of me, Paul. Now, verse 9 and 10, he does, I've marked it off to the side with a kind of a parenthesis here. He s makes a statement that is not necessarily supporting Christ rose from the dead. It's supporting who he is as an apostle. It is a side statement. Paul does that a lot. Makes a side statement that is important doctrinally, but is not the main point of the text. But he makes this point, the fact that he was an apostle born out of due time, that he's labored harder than the rest of the apostles, uh, it's, but it's a part of the passage. It needs to be touched, but it's not the main point. Because the main point is Christ rose from the dead. And then uh, the end of verse 11, we've, we've got here, um, it, oh, it doesn't matter. This is, it doesn't matter whether I'm preaching the gospel or they're preaching the gospel, referring to the other apostles. You're the ones that believed. That's, the, that's where he's at. You'll notice at this point, I've handwritten it once, I've summarized it once, and now I've made note of the things that need to be explored. I would say at this point, I'm about 90 minutes into the study. I don't have an outline. I'm not going to form an outline yet. I want the text to speak out. When I come to the next, there's, okay, here's some more. This is, a, oh, maybe this is, that's the same picture, just straight, sorry. Same picture, straight. Oh, here we go. As I, as I was walking through that, I realized verse 12 continues on with the same thought, and that verse 12 is supporting, verse 12 and following is supporting material. So now, all of a sudden, where I thought, I've studied 1 to 11, I realize 12 down to, what is it, 20, are supporting material for 1 to 11. So now, I need to stop and add this one in. Do everything that I just did for that one, did that one. Okay, guess what? Here comes another 90 minutes. And I haven't had a chance yet to dive down and look at those caves. But this is a part of studying and being able to put together what is the whole picture, what's going on. I'll just give you a, a zoom in on what did, we, what did we find for 11 to 20. Same idea. Wrote it out in pen, came back, summarized it in pencil. Now I'm looking for big picture things. Twice he repeats this one. You see this? If Christ be not risen, if Christ be not risen. So this just, I just picked up on that. And that's, just make a mark. There's a cave. That's what's happening here. Now I mentioned about fall asleep. There's another one. So these guys, here it is, falling asleep. So there, that's connecting us back to the first 1 to 11. So verse, was it 6? He introduces us to falling asleep. Now, Verse 18, he picks up with the same thought. Fall asleep. So he's bringing these together. Paying attention, by the way, as we go through, we're paying attention to things like punctuation. Is it a full stop? Is it a comma? 
Is it a semicolon? All of us should know that the punctuation carries meaning, right? If it's a semicolon, then you've got two halves of a sentence that can be their own sentences by themselves. If it's a full stop, he's bringing an idea. That's the end of that idea. The next sentence could be a brand new idea, or it could be part of that idea that came before, but paying attention to the full stop. A comma, a comma might tell us that there's a number of things that are going in a series. Or a comma might give us a break, take a breath, explain what just happened, there's another comma, and continue on with the idea. If you see two commas, that means that it doesn't always happen this way, but sometimes if there's two commas, it could be that what was said in the middle can be taken out and you can get a full thought from the first part and the last part, that middle part that goes in. So taking the time to look at these things is very important. This is that part we said yesterday, looking at the fish. Take the time to meditate through. So here I am sitting at the desk. Now we're a good three hours in, and I'm at the end of this second piece of paper. And what am I doing in that three-hour time frame? I'm looking at what's being written there, and I'm meditating on it. Here's a phrase. If this phrase was not here, how does it change this verse? Because the Holy Spirit put it there on purpose. What would be different if that phrase wasn't here? Okay, is there other doctrines that are, uh, is there other places in the scripture that speak to this same doctrine? Maybe I need to go and see what those verses say. This is a time now, great time to go back and start looking at some of those caves. So the scripture one, what happens when we start looking scripture? I used, this was my, I'll just, those of you that have got olive tree, how many of you already use olive tree? A couple of you? Okay, here's olive tree, I'll just type it in, scriptures, can you see it? So I type in scriptures, it searches, tells me there's 21 times that the Bible uses the word scriptures, and then I go down through, do you see the side over here, can you see the arrow? Yeah, boy that is terrible small isn't it? I walk down through these and I can click on each one of those and see what is it talking about. So whatever that was, 21 or 26, something like that, and read each one of them. Is that referring to Old Testament or New Testament? By the way, the answer is every time in the New Testament that the word scriptures appears, it always refers to the Old Testament. So problem. Paul's not going to be the only one in the whole Bible in this one spot where he's going to change it. So that means that somewhere in the Old Testament it says Christ will die for our sins, and somewhere in the Old Testament it will say he will rise on the third day. So now, part of my study, I need to go find it. Psalm 16.10, that will not leave my soul in hell. He will rise again. It was prophesied. Psalm 16.10. Where does it say that he will die for our sins? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Where does it say in the Old Testament that he will, not die, uh, that he will die for our sins? Isaiah 53.5. He was bruised for our iniquities. You better believe those verses are coming into Sunday's sermon. Those verses are coming into Sunday's sermon in a big way. I'm going to put them up on the board. If you guys use 
you don't, by the way, you don't have to have a screen to preach. I use it as supplementary. When I go to Exxon, I don't have a screen down there. They hear the exact same Isaiah 53, 5, and I keep it flowing, and they hear it. And it but I want the people to know. This was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Why? Because this New Testament passage said it was so important that it came from the Old Testament. So I'm going to let them hear it from the Old Testament. Okay? Let's come back to... Any questions so far? Brother Justin. To me, it means something. You make it mean what it means to you. All right? I'll give some examples. What, I, what, what am I doing with colors? Um, can you see the colors here? Boy, the colors don't come through very clearly, do they? I've got a different color here than here than here. So this is... Uh, it, this question, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how do you, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So I've underlined that one to draw it out for myself. Some people say there's no resurrection of the dead, so I've underlined that to draw out to me. Now, what happens if there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. New problem. If Christ be not risen from the dead. Now, by the way, I'll go ahead and give you an insight. This is beginning to become my outline. I'm going to call this, you'll hear it later in, when I show you the sermon, I'm going to call this an ugly spiral. Because you start with this problem. There's multiple problems here. You start with this problem. If there's no resurrection of the dead, the response is Christ has not risen from the dead. Next problem. If Christ has not risen from the dead, then you are... If Christ is not risen from the dead, then your preaching is vain, and your faith is in vain. Do you see this? You see this ugly spiral that's happening. So, this underlining, I started drawing this out in the study. I started drawing it out and seeing, oh, there's multiple problems that are shown here. And each time he shows a problem, he shows what's going to happen because of the problem. And then that one becomes the new problem. And because you have this new problem, now you get another problem. So that's, this, that's why I say a spiral. Now we're just getting worse and worse and worse. And at the end, you end up being down here. Uh, if the dead be not raised, then Christ is not raised. Down towards the end of the passage. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we only have hope in this life. And we're of all men most miserable. So this is a spiral that's happening, right? So... For me, underlining those helped me to see them, right? So what I've done here is I've got underline, double, that's the problem, single, that's a result. New problem, underlined, and what goes with it, the same color. That's how you do your, what color, that's totally up to you. I mentioned that I'll, I would circle a word that I don't know for sure, I Light blue, that's the color I just use. It's a light blue, and it just tells me I need to go back and look it up. The word most miserable. Most miserable. Because we think the word miserable means... Miserable. <laughs> I feel bad. That's a, hopeless. To, the most to be pitied. 
By the way, the word miserable, that word shows up in the New Testament two times. Once here, the other one in Revelation 3.18. The church at Laodicea, you think you're rich, but you are miserable and blind. You are to be pitied. That's the meaning of the word. You're to be pitied. People should look at you and think, oh, you, we are really sorry for you. And if in this life we only have hope of the resurrection, if we only, sorry, in this life, if we only have hope of Christ in this life and we don't have hope of him in the next life, then in this life we're wasting our time and we are to be pitied. People should look on us. We are most miserable. No, not we're sitting around and oh, we feel so bad. No. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the, the point that he's making here. So for me, again, blue circle it, that's a cave. I want to go and look at it later, right? Then he's got a conclusion in verse 20 before jumping into 21. 21 gives a, another thought, another angle, verse 20, but there's a different tone here. 12 down to 19. If this, then that. If this, then that. If this, and then verse 20. But none of that is real because Christ has risen from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become first fruits from the dead introduces the new idea for verse 21. That becomes my sermon for next week, verse 21. Because Christ rose from the dead. What was my original question? We had three parts of a sermon series, right? Crucifixion, Easter, why did Christ raise from the dead? The importance of the resurrection. Well, it's twofold. One, verse 1 to 20, one, the first reason is because your salvation is directly tied to his resurrection. Because if he's not raised, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are perished and your faith is in vain. So your salvation is directly tied to his resurrection. Second, verse 21 and following, the reason that he rose from the dead, so that you too can raise from the dead. And that's what the rest of it is. Yes, sir. Oh, no, brother. No. <laughs> We're only about three or four hours into study now. We've got another five, six, seven hours to go. <laughs> this one is me at about 9.30 in the morning, and I'll finish by five. This is, this is just now, what does the passage say? We're looking at the fish, right? This is just looking at the fish. I want to see what does the Scripture say and, and while I'm coming to this, remember, I'm coming to it, not coming in going, hey, I heard somebody preach this one time, and I really liked what he said, and I think I'm going to repeat it, and it'll fit into my sermon like this, and I've got a cool story that I'm going to fit in here. Guys, the longer I do this, the less space there is for cool stories. This scripture is filled with truths from God. Why would I stand on Sunday morning and give 30 minutes of my own personal life experiences? I want my people to grow in the Word. Let the word dwell in them richly. So here we are. I'll show the bottom of this. Now I'm starting to pull pieces and begin to start forming an outline. So here I've got, I've made a note here, fallen asleep in Christ. It was mentioned three times. 
in the passage. We say 1 to 20 now is my passage. I started off, I thought 1 to 11 was going to be my passage. Actually, to tell the truth, I thought 12 to 20 was going to be my passage. Then I realized, no, wait, 1 to 20 needs to be that passage, and 21 to the rest of the chapter needs to be the next passage. So here I've got 1 to 20 is my passage. Inside of that passage, there is this idea of fallen asleep has come up three times. I cannot write that off and give it a passing glance. As a pastor, I need my people to understand the principle that when a brother or sister in Christ dies, they're not dead forever. Death for the believer is only temporary. They close their eyes in death. There are some in my congregation who have recently gone through this with a family member. They need the comfort from the word. There are some who have no idea, but in the next week, month, or year, we'll go through it with a family member. Some of them might be the ones that will die. They need to know when they come up to their death door and they're lying on the bed, they need to know, I'm about to close my eyes and I'll be absent from the body, but I'll be immediately present with the Lord. I'm forming doctrine and forming a theology for my people while we walk through the passage. I'll be honest, when I planned to preach six weeks ago, when I planned to preach this Sunday's message, I had no expectation that we would talk about falling asleep. But the text told me to. So I came to the text, and I let the text do the speaking. I've been planning on, your faith is in vain. That's what I've been playing, planning on. And the text said, no, you've got to talk about falling asleep in Christ. That will be a pastoral, loving moment with my people. And they might need it soon. I have no idea, but the Holy Spirit does. And so in his moving through the preparation, his word will speak to his people, and it will be at the perfect timing because his timing is always right. You'll notice here the problems... I just, those problems that we saw, verses 12 to 20, I've now written them out. If there's no resurrection, no resurrection of Christ. It says it in verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, and verse 16. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and we are false witnesses. So that comes from verse 14, verse 14 and 17, and verse 15. And then if your faith is in vain, at the bottom, then you are still lost in your sin, and those who have gone before you are perished, and we are most miserable. But the good news is, Christ has risen, and he is the first fruits from the dead. So that, you're beginning to see, is the formation of what's going to become the outline. You see, do you now see the outline coming from the text? Do you see this? So then, I have, let me see, where's this one? Here's our outline. Let's see if I can get that. That's the overall outline for the, for the sermon. So at the end of the study, to answer Brother David's question, so at the end of that study, now I'm taking the outline for the sermon from the text. So we have two main points in this text. You're going to see most of that's going to be, say, verses 1 to 11, verse 12 to 20. And so what we're going to see here, two questions... 
what actually happened and why does this matter? That's how I'm outlining it. It's how I'm going to present it. You don't have to present it the same way. You can present it as long as it's the text that's speaking, right? So I see what actually happened. There's introductory in verses 1 and 2, and I give a thesis. How many of you are familiar with the, the, the phrase, a word thesis? So the thesis is the overarching theme. I don't say thesis to our church, all right? So when I stand to preach, I don't say, this is my thesis, no. <laughs> but I, I say it like this. Here's the overarching theme. And I actually use my hand sim signal just like that. The overarching theme for this passage is, and here it is, I've written it out. It will make it onto our graphics on Sunday, and it will be repeated so many times that when people leave to go home, they will know this sentence in their head. Somebody asked them in the parking lot, car park, today what did the pastor preach on? They'll spit this sentence out. I will say it so many times that my goal is when the average church member leaves, they can say this sentence. The bodily resurrection of Christ is foundational to your salvation, and it gives promise to your personal bodily resurrection. That's the whole main idea of this sentence. Simple English. Christ rose from the dead, and that's your foundation for salvation, and it gives you hope for your own resurrection. That's simple English version. They might not be able to say those exact perfect words, but they will know. The resurrection of Christ is foundational for my salvation, and it gives me hope for my own resurrection. You want your people to know what the main point of the sermon was. Right? If you got five points, will they remember them all? Even three. Now, guys, I'll preach three points, but they all go to one overarching theme. There's one overarching theme for the passage. The people need to know what that one overarching theme is. And so whether you have one point or three points or seven points or 12, they all need to go to that one point. So here we have from this passage, what do we have? What actually happened? Verses 3 to 11. Christ died for our sin, according to the scripture. He was buried, according to the scripture. Remember I mentioned, according to the scripture, Psalm 1610 is going to make it into this, into this sermon. Isaiah 53, 5 is going to make it into this sermon, according to the scripture, according to the scripture. He was seen of many eyewitnesses. So you've got Cephas, the 12, 500 at once, all the apostles, then by me, Paul, or James too, and I've got a note in here, some of them are asleep. That's going to become a major portion, important part of the sermon. So what actually happened? And then he says, or I, I made this note here, an explanation of Paul's apostleship, he was born out of due time. Now here's the, here's the important part of that. Believing in his resurrection is directly tied to your salvation. Somebody quote Romans 10, 9. That's going to be my left hook, by the way. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. You cannot be saved without believing in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, here, this is not from the passage. This is historical context. What's going on historically? I will give this at the introduction of the sermon. 
They call it Greek dualism, the idea that a spirit is good and a body is bad. That was the Greek belief. So for them to think that someone was resurrected in a body, it went against what they believed. They believed that if you were resurrected in a body, then that's a bad thing. That it would be best for you to just be resurrected in a spirit only. And so from the filter that they came to the church with, these are Greek believers in Corinth, with the filter that they came with, they thought bodily resurrection would be anti-God. And Paul goes, no, hang on a second. Bodily resurrection is directly tied to your salvation. You need to believe this. You don't just give an assent and say, yeah, well, the Bible said so it happened. No, you need to actually believe it because it's tied to your salvation. It gives a moment, by the way, for me to make a statement to our church, the fact that all of us come with a different background. And we need to lay aside our different backgrounds and trust what the scripture has said and believe it, actually believe it. Paul, I see you taking pictures of my sermon outline. This is, you don't get to skip skip on Sunday, okay? (laughs) Those of you that don't know Paul and Naomi, they're faithful church members here. Wonderful to have them along. You can also, and I will make mention of the Jewish Sadducees who did not believe in angels or the resurrection. Even today. Today, people will say, believe what you want to, but follow the science. You know these phrases, right? And so even in today, I will introduce the sermon with that so that I lay a foundation of why would people have a struggle with believing in the resurrection of Christ, but how important is the resurrection of Christ? It's so important that it's directly tied to your salvation. Point one, what actually happened? And then point two, why does it matter? And then I'll walk through that dangerous spiral as we go down. Take away the resurrection. Now it's an endless cycle that doesn't stop until you're absolutely hopeless. So here you have a, that's the outline for the sermon. Now, Brother David's question Now where are we at? Lunchtime. It's me. That's where I'm at. My goal, when I start in the morning, my goal is that by lunch, I've got my outline written. And then I'm going to use the outline. I actually, I I print that off. So I'll handwrite a copy and I can scratch it all up. And then I'll, I'll print this off. I set it off to the side and I write the manuscript from that. I'll talk about the manuscript in just a second. Um, Does anybody have any questions Obviously, you don't. If you want to ask about 1 Corinthians 15, that's fine. But do you have any questions? Maybe you've seen in the paper. Again, this is how I do it. This is just my method of looking at the fish. It's not the only method to look at the fish, but spending the time and drilling down on it. Does anybody have any questions? Guys, I know that a lot of us, and myself included, have used alliteration for a lot of years. And I, we learned it from those who came before. And I'll say, brethren, I don't want to toss anybody who has come before, before me. I don't want to toss them under the bus. They learned from other people. And I stand, honestly, I stand on the shoulders of giants. 
I don't want to correct them. It worked for them. I don't find alliteration working for me. How many of you know what, I'm, what I mean when I say alliteration? Alliteration would be, I'm going to have, I'll say, example, three points, and each one of the points starts with the same letter. That's alliteration. An acrostic would be, here's a word, and then I'll take a word for it. And I think the easiest one for us to see would be the word Baptist. That's an acrostic. Baptist, and then you've got, uh, I'm a Baptist, and I should know this. What's the B? <laughs> Baptism? What's, what's the B? Oh, good. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, you come down, autonomy of the local church and priesthood of the, of, of the believer. You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about. That's an acrostic. That's an acrostic. Okay, alliteration is... Uh, thank you, PNG Power. Uh, alliteration is... Uh, you Just take a letter, and point one, there's a letter... Point two, it's the same letter, you repeat it. It is a method by which people will remember. And that's why sometimes we'll use that. If, and I'll be honest, if I can make that work, I will. I'll, I'll make use of it, if I can make it work. I'll give an example, and here, one and two, point one and point two, there's a little bit of it in the structure. You'll notice question mark, question mark, right? A, B, C, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was seen. Do you see this? But it's natural. I didn't have to go looking up in the thesaurus for another C word, <laughs> right? Uh, these are natural. It just came right out of the text. So, I don't spend a lot of time on alliteration because if it's not there in the text, I don't want to force it. I, my own personal experience, and I don't know how it is for you, but my own personal experience is the more things that I put there that, to be memory makers, the less I realize people actually remember. And I just toss an idea out to you. If we're not careful, we as pastors will preach Sunday morning three life-changing points, and we expect our people to come down and be in the altar and get their lives right with God, and we measure our success on whether or not they come and fill the altar. We have Sunday school, and we teach them three life-changing points, and if it's really good, we'll give an invitation, and we expect them to be down in the altar and get right with God. Sunday evening service, three life-changing points. By the end of Sunday, our people have had nine life-changing points that are, they're expected to be in the altar for. And we ask them on Monday, what happened in church yesterday? And they can't remember anything. Just a challenge. One isn't bad. One main idea might be remembered on Monday better than nine remembered. Does that make sense? That said, I've got no problem with asking our people come to the altar and get right with God. But at the same time, not every passage lends itself that way. This passage is going to end itself with a whole lot of hope. And there will be a challenge. 
your salvation is tied to your belief of the resurrection, perhaps you haven't believed of the resurrection, I question your salvation. That's That's a very natural invitation. But not every passage lends itself to come and get right with God. We good? All right. I make sure I'm not going to throw anybody out. Did I answer the question on alliteration? I, I'm not going to. I'm not one to try and make it fit. Three points in a poem. I'm not. I'm not one to lean that way. I'd rather that the text spoke and people walk out. Uh, I preached a message at Pensacola Christian College a month or so ago, five weeks ago, I guess. Um, and the main point of the passage that people walked away and remembered was, we give thanks to God for his mercy upon the Gentiles. It was the whole, past, whole point of the passage. Romans 15. And oh, the richness that came from the Old Testament references that were played into that. But I said the phrase so many times that I had students coming to me afterwards. Pastor, I've never thought about the phrase for his mercy upon the Gentiles. Oh, love the passage. Now all of a sudden there's a, Six verses that a whole bunch of young people can go, I love God for his mercy upon the Gentiles because we didn't deserve that, right? Make the point of the passage the point of the sermon. Yes, sir. Oh, great, great question. You got a great question. So the question is, how many points do you know to take out of this passage? I almost slowed this passage down, and just because of my own preaching and what I know our people can handle, I almost slowed this down, made it three sermons. 1 to 11 was one, 12 to 20 was another. I almost did that, but because of me knowing what my preaching calendar and I wanted to get on, I just made it two, because from the passage you only get two main points. Um, However, you could slow this down, brother. You can slow it down a lot. Uh, I'll give example. I just finished preaching through Romans, which if you saw the paper which were going around, I think all of those were Romans passages. Um, I preached through Romans just under three years. So every Sunday morning, we're in the book of Romans, and we're taking six verses or eight verses. I had one chapter that I did the whole chapter in one Sunday. That was Romans 14. When I stepped into the pulpit, I said, I'm going to do something rare today. I'm going to walk through the entire chapter of Romans 14 in one, in one sermon. I had so many people look at me in shock. We can't believe this. You never do one, one whole chapter in, in, in one sermon. But the reason I did Romans 14 in one, in one sermon was because the whole chapter had one idea. Unity among brethren. I will lay aside all of my rights so that I can have unity among brethren. That's the whole point of Romans 14. I could have broken it down. We could have slowed it down if we wanted to because there's one section about meat, there's another section about drink, there's another section about days, but all of them came to the same point. Unity among brethren is paramount. Uh, So that at the end of the day, it's down to you, preacher. Make sure that the point of the passage is the point of your sermon. That's, I I wish I had a better answer for you. uh, Does that make sense though? Anybody else? Thank you. Would you refer your, uh, in um, preparation of a sermon, like 
you know, the analogy of uh, building up a, you know, like a builder using the term to build something, uh, the foundation and then the body of the sermon. And, and then at the end of it, you know, uh, on the day of presentation, you, you present it and just like uh, uh, there is this expectation of, you know, people coming to the altar and um, mm. a word of commendation. It doesn't happen. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, um, what about the satisfaction of, you know, the faithfulness of, you know, committing yourself to the word? Uh, I believe there should be peace in your heart that uh, you have done what you have done yes, yes. Uh, without being, you know, having yes. some kind of acclimation. Let me so speak to that. Can. Thanks, Brother Roger. This is such an important part of the entire process. And while I say, hey, sit down and read through the passage, there should be a spirit within myself, a spirit of uh, longing for the Lord to speak to me. And so that manifests itself in me in prayer. So I'm praying before I start. I'm praying throughout it. And may I say this, brothers, if the passage does not move you at the core, it will never move your people. Many times. Here's how I know that the passage has spoken to me. When I'm at my desk weeping. Oh. There's times when my wife, so our our house is set up, my office, I've got glass doors on my office, and she can be in the kitchen, and if I'm in the study and she's in the house, usually she's in the kitchen, it's, I thank God for her, and she can see me, and she has come in my office many times, and she said, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just rejoicing in the goodness of God in here, because this passage has spoken to me, God has done a work in my heart. Maybe, guys, maybe it's a moment of rejoicing. Maybe it's a moment of repentance. But the truth of the matter is, this passage, I have not finished my exegetical process until this passage is spoken to me. Otherwise, it's just an academic exercise. So thank you, Brother Roger, for bringing that out. This has got to be, it's got to be personal for me. I have to be rejoicing that he rose from the grave. Why? My salvation is dependent on it. So when I come on Sunday morning, oh, I'm coming with some of the passion that I got. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? I, I, know that, I know that a lot of this seems like an academic exercise, but oh my goodness, no. The, thank you, Brother Roger, for bring, bringing that in. Does that answer the question? Okay. I am, by the way, and I think something that he mentioned was, how much am I looking for? Uh, what should the invitation look like? I think that was part of the question. Um, what should that look like? Some of that I may know at this point. Some of it I may not know. Um, and, and, uh, and I'll get to the manuscript in a minute. Um, my process, the, the next part of it. Um, what, what do I do from noon until five? Yes, sir. Hmm. The message, uh, it might not be very necessary to push uh, on the invitation call. Some may want to push, some may not want to. Can you, um, from your own... Yeah, uh, yeah. I, and, and to be honest, that's, I believe that comes down to the personal style of every different preacher and how God uses that preacher. I know some preachers that are very gifted in, in, in giving an invitation. Uh, for those of you that were at National Pastors Conference, you guys got to hear Pastor Cranston speak. That guy is very gifted, 
very gifted in delivery, very gifted in the ability to give an invitation. We had him here for youth camp. He gave an invitation every service. And he had this, the, the young people, that invitation, he told them, I want you to come, but I don't want you to come and be around the altar. I want you to come and line up right down the middle. And we'll one by one have somebody. Every time I ran out of counselors, every time. And we trained like 20 counselors. And at the end, I'm like, well, I only got four counselors left and I got 12 kids. Okay, what do I do? You know, <laughs> it, it, Some people are very gifted in giving an, an invitation. Others don't press. And it really comes down to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that one is right and the other is wrong or vice versa. It, it comes down to being comfortable with what the Lord's doing in your heart as the speaker. And then as you're speaking, you should definitely be paying attention to what's going on in the audience. And as you see the Holy Spirit, and guys, I'm going to be honest, I have missed it. I have completely missed it as a pastor. I've had guys on our pastoral staff come to me at the end of the service and say, Pastor, you completely missed that one. I'm thankful that I've got guys that can speak to me that way. Might encourage you. It's okay. Give men the authority to speak into your life. It can be a good for your church. One of, our, one of our deacons pulled me off to the, at the end of the service one Sunday. He said, Pastor, you did not give a strong invitation at the end. And he said, me along with others were ready to respond. <laughs> Some days you miss it. Um, but be sensitive. Be, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit doing his work. And if people don't respond, don't take it personally. Today you might be planting and might be watering. You don't harvest from the garden every time you go to the garden. So just be content to plant and water and let the Lord be the one that gives the, the response. Does that help, Brother Roger? Okay. Is there another question? Anybody else? No, we move on? The manuscript. So what do I do? 12 o'clock. Man, I've just finished. I grab a, another cup of coffee and I start writing. Um, this is, and this is how I do it. Again, you don't have to do it this way. Um, I've got then the beginnings of, I, I begin to, to type out the manuscript. On this document, it continues on down here. So this is my manuscript. And so I manuscript, and what I mean by manuscript is I literally type out word for word what I would say if I was preaching this sermon right now. I take this to the pulpit. I mentioned earlier I don't do it with a laptop. I've got it on a, on a tablet. The tablet sits here on the side of the pulpit and people don't see it. You really have to know it's here in order to know that I'm at all following it. I'll say this, when I, Sunday morning I get up, this is already written, so Sunday, this sermon for Sunday is already ready, I've got it prepared, it's ready to go. Saturday night I'll read it over once, Sunday morning I'm going to read this thing over and over and over and over. On Sunday morning I will write a piece of A5 paper. I just cut an A4 in half and I, I write the notes which are the summary outline for the manuscript. A couple of reasons I do that. In my mind, before I step into the pulpit, I need to know how does this sermon flow 
from start to finish. Because if I've got 12 pages, <laughs> I don't even know. You're going to get lost. And so in my mind, this is just how my mind works, I know we start, and I take a, I take a sermon as it's, I'm taking these people on a journey. And we're going from point A to point B, and the one that shows us where the journey is, is this text. The passage is going to tell us what the journey is. And, and I've got it, the outline is written out on an A5 paper, so part of it is to just give my mind a way that this, here's where the path is. Along the way, we'll stop and we'll look at that and we'll look at this, but that's what the path is. The second reason is because at any moment, my tablet could die. And if my tablet dies, I ain't got nothing. But if I got an A5 paper, I still know general idea where I'm going. That was important to me uh, a couple of years back. About four years ago, I fell off the roof of the house out here and I ended up having a major brain injury and in the moments that followed, in the few hours after that, I was actually paralyzed, couldn't move my legs, couldn't move my arms. And it was by God's grace alone that I'm standing and walking. So, some of you were there at the hospital. I think Pastor Tao coming and holding my hand. He was in a wheelchair at the time, holding my hand as they were taking me in to do scan. They found there was two bleeds in my brain, one in the center and one in the brain stem. That kicked off eight months of some of the worst headaches I've ever experienced in my life. Any light, in fact, I'm standing here with this light now, any light would create the biggest headaches. Words, there were major portions of my vocabulary that were gone. I didn't, I could say simple sentences, but extra words were gone. Names were gone. In fact, I would look at guys that worked with us every day, and I'd look at them in the face, and I could tell them, I know you're married, and you have three kids, and your kids are this old. I don't have a clue what your name is. Terrifying. Big portions of my memory were locked away, is the best way for me to describe it. And so when I would stand to preach, it was terrifying. Because I couldn't keep... a train of thought for more than about 90 seconds I would start talking about something and if I didn't know what was next that's the end can you imagine standing to preach like that that went for almost a year that's when I fell in love with the manuscript I wrote everything down during that time I'd leave from here to go to town to go get something, and I'd get halfway there and have no idea where I was going. I don't remember where I'm going, what I'm supposed to be doing, what am I, and I carried a notebook. You're going to town, you're going to this place, you're going to see this person at this time. And halfway there, I'd have to look at my notebook and see what am I doing and why am I going there. It was a season, it was a trial. I'm thankful for it because God has given me an insight to what some of our church members go through in living with pain. I'm able to sympathize with them because of what God let me go through. In the hours that followed that accident, a spine surgeon in the U.S. told me I should prepare to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And it's only God's grace. I walked out of the hospital that night. Unbelievable. I'm thankful for God's grace on my life. But in that process, I began to realize 
I need some helps. I had already started, before I had the brain injury, I had already started sort of manuscripting, and when I say sort of, maybe four or five pages. And now, I, for the last four years, I write everything, word for word. And so you can kind of see here, this would be the beginning of the sermon for Sunday morning. I may do this, I may not, but this is what I'm planning on Sunday morning. I will step into the pulpit, and I would say, I wonder if you've listened to a sermon like you did last week, our congregation heard last week's crucifixion, and maybe you were moved, and the cross was a horrific reality. When you meditate on the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us, the right response is repentance, gratitude, tears. Right now, that's how I plan on starting Sunday sermon. I will not read it. Brothers, some of us are moving more towards manuscript. Can I encourage you? Don't read it. That becomes, for the audience, super boring. Because they know you're reading it. So what I will do, most likely, in the closing moments of offering, before I come into the pulpit... I will reread these first two sentences, our first two paragraphs, and these will be ready to go, front of my mind, as soon as I step into the pulpit. And I'll step into the pulpit, I'll be setting my Bible, I wonder if you've ever listened to a sermon like you did last week. And they're not seeing me read this, but the idea is there, right? Now also, as I deliver it, it's not going to come out word for word of what's on the manuscript. But the main idea is there. When you have had a brain injury and you lose your train of thought and you get the gift of being able to look down and read the next sentence, oh, how gift, what a gift that was to me. Our pastoral staff watched. They knew when I would stumble. And I watched many times, Brother Eric, somebody would have a crying baby. A crying baby would stop me dead in my tracks in the sermon. And I would watch Brother Eric or his wife get up and go and get that mom and that baby, escort them outside. And while they're doing that, I'm back at my notes and I'm just reading my notes, reading it out loud. Our church was exceptionally gracious to me during that time. But I remember there was a, I think it was a Friday. We went out to Bomana, Brother Eric and I did. We went to Bomana. They'd asked me to preach that day. I took my iPad. And how many of you have been to Bomana to do ministry out there? 700 guys, hardcore criminals. They're all sitting around. Somebody had brought some pigs to do a meal, stacks of Cokes. And they brought the pulpit out into the middle of the basketball court. And now I'm going to preach. I was, at that point, I was 11 months from my brain injury. I was still terrified to speak in public because I sometimes would have a hard time to keep a train of thought. I turned on my iPad, and within the first 30 seconds, the sun had been beating down on that podium, and the iPad overheated. Dead. And now, welcome to 700 audience. <laughs> oh my goodness, I was terrified. But I knew the passage, and I had that little A5 piece of paper, and I preached the whole thing. 
I got to the end of it. I went back over and sat down with Brother Eric. Brother Eric said, man, that was really good. Praise the Lord, you spoke. That was great. God moved. I watched people in response. And my only thought was, and my iPad died. <laughs> and I told him, God gave me a gift today. I was able to preach an entire sermon without having to be tied to my manuscript. If I had not prepared myself to be untied to the manuscript, I think in that moment I would have freaked out. So what's the manuscript there? It's there to help you, and it helps you pre-think. How many of you have gotten in a sermon, you don't do a manuscript, I didn't used to, how many of you have gotten into a sermon, you start to give an illustration, and as you're giving the illustration, you go, this doesn't even really line up at all. <laughs> have you ever done that? You know what a manuscript does? It eliminates that. You never, if you're manuscripting it, and before, three days before the sermon, you're typing it out, or you're writing it out, and you're writing the illustration, and you start writing the illustration, and you go, oh my goodness, this illustration doesn't work. Guess what you can do? Delete! <laughs> it never makes it to the pulpit. <laughs> Manuscript is great for that. You get to pre-think every detail of the sermon. Another thing that it does, I want to show this one to you. It helps you to craft words. This one I used last Sunday, and I think that this was probably our most powerful moment in the entire sermon last Sunday. I was, I'm preaching through John 19, the crucifixion. So here you see, uh, I, in fact, let's continue our reading. So I bring everybody's attention back to John 19, verse 23. I read this, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. I come all the way down. This is just me. Red is scripture, black my ideas. I'm going to interject this in the middle of this. So these things, therefore, the soldiers did. And I just spit this out. It had, not, it had been prophesied and it was fulfilled. And in a moment of chaos, God is still in control. And then I keep reading. So they've not even had a chance as an audience to look up from their Bibles yet. And now they go back to their Bibles. There was at the cross of Jesus, his mother, and then there's the disciple whom he loved. Oh, by the way, that's John. I'm just going to toss that in for them, right? We finish this. Now, John doesn't record Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Matthew does. So I'm going to bring it in, in the narrative. I'm going to bring it in, and this is where it happened. So in the narrative, I bring in Matthew 27. For our church, you don't have to do it this way. For our church, if I have a verse that's just jump and come back, I throw it on the board. Because I don't want to spend five minutes of people trying to find Matthew 27, and all I needed them to do was hear this verse. So I put up on the board. That's how I do. You do how you want. But in this moment in the crucifixion, Jesus on the cross, he looks down. Mary and John, behold your mother, behold your son. And then Matthew records, there's three hours of darkness from noon until three, and it was at the end of the, that darkness that the Lord Jesus cried with a loud voice. Matthew records, and I say that verse exactly the way it's written. It's on the screens. And then, I think this was probably our most powerful moment in the presentation this is what a manuscript does it gives you the chance to craft words we pastors are wordsmiths we use our words doctors 
use scalpels and needles. Pilots use airplanes. Engineers use spinners. Pastors, we use words. Manuscript. The light of the world is about to be extinguished. The one who breathed the breath of life into man was about to breathe his last. The one who basks in the praise of the angels has now endured the insults of man, speaking as it were with the tongues of hell. I'm not going to give that on the cuff. That doesn't happen in the moment. That happens in the study as I sit there and I think of the lily of the valley has been crushed by sinfully arrogant hands. Right? Do you see this? We're wordsmiths. So we use our words to draw people's minds. I like the manuscript because it gives me the opportunity to do that. Prethink those things. So I've taken the time to prethink it. I put it down on paper. And as I'm preaching, here it is. Let me just give it to you, brothers and sisters. I want you to hear these are the words. The Father's poured out His wrath on His Son, and because the wages of sin is death, the sustainer of life is now taking our paycheck. Those are crafted words that happen in the study, make it into the manuscript, and then when I come to deliver it, I'm staying on point. Pastor Ben, I stay and make him a statement. Climb a mountain, cut up in salt water. Going about and about. If you've got a manuscript that you're following, you don't ever chase off the trail. That's why I like the manuscript so much. Helps me to prethink. Typically, 12 pages is what I do. If I had a brain injury moment, I could read it. I would even say, if the Lord led and I wasn't able to preach at the last second, I literally could hand my manuscript to somebody else and they could read it. I don't see that as being a good idea, but it's possible. That's the manuscript, Brother Eric. Any questions on manuscript? You don't have to do that, brothers. Papa John does not. Yeah, yes. Yeah, here. I know you, I know you can't see the details. This is one of my manuscripts here. 
get it up here in the light. That's five sermons. Five. 35 minutes long each. This isn't, this isn't boasting. I, I don't have his brain injury, and I don't have his brain. But for 40 years I've been in ministry, this was how it's worked out for me. That's Revelation 1, verse 1, that much. That was 35 minutes at a Wednesday night service. And the, and the next one, same thing, just this right here. But do you know what's behind all of that? That, the, the first part. It was the digging. It was sitting at the desk, and it was going through Revelation. And as I read through the verses, where are the natural breaks here in chapter 1? And I, and I told our people, Revelation is not going to break up like this, but the first chapter is packed full with a lot of introductory material for the entire book. And I did that. But when it comes to me crafting what I'm working from, I can't do that. And I'm, some of you should do this. You should learn to do it. I'm an old guy. I should have learned this when I was younger. The guys older than me, a lot older, used to do it. And then the guys my age, we didn't do it. And now the younger guys are starting to do it. But what I do have on here is triggers. Can you see the colors? Even if you can't see it, there are colors on here. Every one of those colors is a trigger. I'll be preaching. I'll step away from the pulpit. When I come back, I'm looking at a color. And a green color is verses. And I know I already did one through three. Uh, verses 1 through 3. Now now I'm going to go to John 1, 1. And then the next one I'm going to go to Revelation 19, 10. And beside it, I just have a note. But the way my brain thinks, I don't need any more than five or six words most of the time. And an entire thought is running through my head. Well, I just prepped it. Do not ask me to preach that the next morning. <laughs> don't say, hey, you just preached that. Would you preach that again? I'm terrified. I've got to go back. I've got to get all the same books out. I have to get all the same stuff, and that's the advantage of the manuscript. He's got it all there. All I have is the scratch notes, and they're not scratch notes. These are worked up, rewritten, but I work with that. And I also write incredibly tiny. So maybe most people, that would fill a whole page. But for me, it's very tiny. But this is how I, how I think. My introductions, I can't do an adequate introduction until I'm in the, in the moment. I can't do that. I can't. I will think these things through. But until I see your eyes and your face and know who's here, and just to even use an example, Pastor Holmes wasn't able to be here, uh, this and Pastor Mapo, those two guys at, at a, in a moment might be different for me. I'm like, man, if those guys were here, I would say this. And I'm not just saying for those, but I'm like, oh, they're not. But, whoa, there's a lot of new people here. They don't know me. I think I need to kind of introduce something, not talk about myself, but introduce a certain thing that they, these guys would already know and I could jump the point. Do you understand? My, my introduction is going to be based on the moment of who I'm seeing there. Uh, even if it's our regular church congregation. I come in, is this a he do I have a heavy feeling about this this morning? Does it seem like there's a burden in here? Um, and you know what usually directs that? Usually the music. The music. Yeah. You see, I see how the music. But this is just how I think. I want you young guys learn from Pastor Matt what he's saying. But us older guys, this is possible. But if you don't do that desk work ahead of time, you're cheating yourself and cheating your people. So typically for me, this is 12 o'clock until 4. Um, by 4 o'clock, I'm typically finishing around about that time. Uh, about, say, 10, 11 pages. And usually on Sunday morning, I'll finish out the, whatever's left to make it 12. It doesn't have to, there's no magic about 12, but it just happens to come out that way. 
I typically preach 51 minutes, 50, 51, 52. Um, that's just typical. Uh, something else that might be of help, if you do manuscript or if you type in your notes, uh, how many of you know how to tag a document? How many of you know how to tag a document? You tag a document, I'll just, this is a Mac, okay? So if you don't have a Mac, it's okay. Microsoft Word does the same thing, if I'm not mistaken. If you come up to the top of the document, you've got the place in there where you write the name of the document. So the name of this document, the name of this sermon is The Importance of an Empty Tomb. And I've tagged it with three tags. You can tag it with as many tags as you want. I've tagged this one for my own use as Easter 2023. I've also tagged it as CCBC, which is our church, and I tagged it as sermons. What that does is nothing for now. But what it does help with is later on, if I want to know what have I preached on the home, I can search home, and it'll give me all the sermons I've preached on the home because I've tagged it. Or what have I preached on, I, I've got Easter, I, I did it this morning, Easter 2020, Easter 2021, 2022, 2023, each one of those is, is cataloged only because all I did was just add a tag to it. So there's a t they, they give you this tag option. I've been doing it for several years and I just add a tag to it. That's all you have to do later on when you go search and the tag helps. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to go search for an old sermon uh, if you haven't got a tag system, sometimes that can be really difficult. So, Anybody have any other questions? Brother Zandro. Allow me to ask, uh, talking about the manuscripts, and uh, was there a time in, in your preparation of the sermon when you already did that maybe Wednesday or before Sunday, and you were browsing it and reviewing it, what if, was there a time on the last minute that there was somehow a new revelation came in connection to what you have, how did you do that? Oh, brother, oh. can I say rare and terrifying? <laughs> He's asking, has there ever been a moment when last second something changed I've had it happen two different ways. One, I have prepared a message, and perhaps those of you that have been pastoring for a long time have experienced this. Prepared a message, come into the service, and you realize, man, this message is not the message for this hour. And now all of a sudden, you've, you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is not a fleshly thing. Following the leading of the Holy Spirit, what am I going to do? I believe I need, instead of preaching this sermon, I need to switch over. I need to preach. Typically, for me, that has been, I need to be much more gospel-centered in this, in this hour. I would hope, brethren, that you know the gospel well enough to where you don't have to spend time studying it. I would hope that the gospel would just pour out of your pores. You should be able to jump to John 3, or Romans 1, or Romans 3, or Romans 5. Or jump over to Isaiah 53 and walk through a passage with the people and point them at the Savior. I think that should be very easy to do. And let me say it this way. I want all of, all of us to hear this. If you cannot clearly explain the gospel, most likely it has not impacted your life. 
If you cannot clearly explain the gospel, most likely it has not impacted your life. I'll say it a different way. If you can't clearly explain the gospel, I don't think you're saved. The gospel for pastors and preachers should be the core for you. And so in a moment like that, we're going to step away from what I have prepared and put 10 hours into because I believe that the moment, this moment right now needs to be completely about the gospel. Yes, the gospel would be a part of the other message, but perhaps it needs to be more central. So I've had that happen. I'll tell you the one that's more terrifying is in the moment as I'm last second, we do a scripture reading. I don't know if your church does that or not. Our church, we do a scripture reading. So we come through our song service and I usually ask one of the men in our church, it gives them an opportunity to be involved in, in, in a part of the service, and I ask them to do the scripture reading. So whatever the passage is that we're going to preach, that I'm going to preach from, I have them read that passage in its entirety. It's a moment of quiet as we sit. We've just worshiped in song. We sit and listen. Now that brother reads through the passage, and I've hap- had it happen one time where I'm sitting over here, and he reads through the passage, and when he reads through the passage, all of a sudden, something that I missed when I was looking at the fish jumps off the page at me. And I say that's terrifying because I should have seen it. But it's almost like in the moment, the Holy Spirit opens my eyes, and I go, wait a second. And in that moment, I'm scrambling because I've got a song before I step in the pulpit. And so I will scramble at that last second. I will scramble and jot down on my A5 some notes or I'll scroll to the manuscript where it is in the manuscript and I'll type an an idea in there. Um, But that should be, again, that should be absolutely rare because you should have put the time in and seen the passage before. Does that answer the question, Brother Zandrow? That's a great point. Be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. For me, Sunday mornings, I get here an hour before service starts. We start at 9, I get here at 8 come in, Braxton helps me now, and he's getting lights and everything that's on, um, and, and I come in, and my goal when I come in, I come in, set things in order, by 8.15, so still 30 minutes before the majority of people show up, I walk through the church and I pray over the seats. You know, you know where your people are going to be seated. And I'm praying, and I'm thinking the sermon, you can't help but prepare a sermon and, rem- and remember that this brother's going through this and that sister's having and that happen and this one needs to be comforted in this area. Prepare the sermon with your people in mind. There's nothing wrong with that. And as I walk through, I'm praying for the Balas that are sitting here and Willie's sitting there with his friends and this one's sitting there and that one's sitting there and this one's sitting here. and They're not even here yet, but I'm praying over them and praying, Lord, would you let the... Okay, then I'm greeting people as they come in. And as I'm greeting people, sometimes I, I tend to get a bit high-minded in my preaching. <laughs> and I see people come in, and I'm shaking hands with these kids. we got a group of kids, probably 10 of them, that come from Joyce Bay. Those Joyce Bay kids come in. And I'm reminded in that moment, this kid came to hear from the Lord. Matt, make sure you bring it down and put it on their level, right? And so that, for me, is part of my sermon preparation, is even at the, the greeting of them coming in the door. So is that helpful? 
Anybody got anything else? Thank you for your patience of sitting through and listening as I show you my method. Again, it's not the only method. There are many. Um, but it was helpful for me when I got to see some other brothers and how they developed their sermons. And I hope, if anything, the main takeaway is spend time in the Word. Spend time in the Word. Let it saturate and affect your soul. And then watch as God takes that and then impacts your people. Thanks, brothers.